together as a group. Please just guide our minds and hearts, help us to be open to the Spirit. It's going to turn into a five-week series called Trust the Process. And the theme, as Pastor mentioned already in the uh, earlier service, is progressive sanctification. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean and what should that look like within the Christian's context. And so we're speaking this morning and in this series to those of you that have put your faith and trust in Christ. You're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ because an unbeliever cannot be sanctified. They cannot go through the process of progressive sanctification because they have no spirit living in them. They've not been regenerated by the spirit. And so that's what this, uh, this series is mainly focused at and actually completely focused on is those of you that, that have placed your faith and trust in Christ. So I'd encourage you, if you have not done that, to consider the claims of Christ and the gospel and to choose to put your faith in him alone. But as we begin here, uh, we want to, to talk about this idea of progressive sanctification. This morning will be an introduction um, to the series, and we'll be talking mainly about the power. Where do we get to be sanctified, this progressive growth in our relationship with Christ? So that will be our theme this morning is uh, how are we powered to do this? Now, you should have a chart um, on your notes. I want you to flip your note sheet over uh, chart there. It shows you exactly what we'll be studying over the next five weeks. Uh, This is not my chart uh, personally. This came from the Biblical Counseling Center in Chicago. Um, I'm doing some studying permission to use this. And so their website is there on, on the sheet Notice that this art shows a progression, a stair step upward. It's a move from one place to another. So if I was going to start over here, air, I have to take a number of steps to get to that goal. That is, in essence, in a very simplified way, what the Christian life is about. Or perhaps where you are right now, because it's lifelong, it never really, it never really ends, Sometimes we go back and start again, and sometimes we review and relearn some things that we've forgotten. But it is a process of moving from one place to the next. And as Christians, we should always be moving. We should always be like water that's always moving. When water gets stagnant, it gets that algae on there, there's no life, it's dead. We as Christians should always be growing and moving in our faith. You should be as a believer in a different place today than you were 12 months ago. You should constantly be growing and changing as you begin to learn from the word and as the spirit ministers to you. So this is a process and we need to trust the process. Let's say that together and make sure we're all awake. Trust the process. Okay, thank you. So now you may have heard this phrase used in athletic situations or other um, scenarios that there's a goal and it requires a discipline process. To achieve the goal. And this is a good frame of reference for us to consider. As we think about this, we have a process with a goal in mind. If you look to the far right of your chart, the last three steps are categorized under the heading, that's the payoff. That's what we want to achieve. Godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. And we we often struggle with these things. We say, why aren't I more godly? Man, I'm really struggling with certain sins or certain issues in my life. Why why do I have a hard time showing brotherly kindness uh, to, to certain people? They just rub me the wrong way and I struggle with kindness. Why do I struggle with love? 
Well, part of that reason is because you have not grown in that discipline and you've not done the foundation and the hard work in order to achieve that payoff. So that's where we're going. That's our goal. And so let's see here. We've got, uh, if you're not in 2 Peter, please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. That will be our main text for this entire series, just the first 7 to 10 verses. And we have Coach Peter here. He's, he's coaching us. He's giving us these insights. He's telling us, look, guys, this is what you need to be able to grow. And he gives us the sequence. And so we, we see that there are three main parts of this. And I'll read the verses in a moment. But just, just look at your chart for, for a moment here. We have the first three steps. That's the foundation, the basic truths that we stand upon that we know to be true. Then comes the hard work. That's that middle section, the middle two steps there. That's self-control and perseverance. You say, that sounds hard. It is. It is hard work. That's why we've, it's, it's labeled that way. And, and, and we may need to go back into the foundation and then come back into the hard work, and it might be a cycle that we go through. But then we come to the payoff, which we've talked about, godliness, brotherly, kindness, and love. So we see that sanctification is both a process and a goal. Sanctification literally means to be set aside, to be set apart. God has, by his um, salvation of us, indwelling spirit, he has set us apart from those that are unbelievers. Not, not that we're better than them, but just that we have a different uh, outlook on life. We have a different life now because of the spirit's indwelling. And so we see that God is, while God is the one doing the transforming, he's actually providing the power. We're going to see that in our key verse this morning. This process requires you and I that we are in cooperation with God. We cannot sit back and go, all right, Lord, I, I chose to put my faith in your son and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify me, change me, and, and I'm going to let go and let God, and I'm going to just... Uh, relax and let God do all the work. That is not how progressive sanctification works. He asks us to cooperate with him in this process. You and I both have responsibilities in our own progressive sanctification. We have no responsibility in our justification. Amen? <laughs> it's, it's God and God alone. I mean, all we did was make a passive choice to put our faith and trust in Christ. We did no work. We could, we could purchase it. There, there, we could not purchase it. We could not earn it. Um, only God could do it. That's justification. That's the first tense of salvation. Now we're talking about the second tense. There is a third tense, glorification, when all sin is gone and we'll be with the Lord forever. But right now we're in the middle tense called sanctification. It's a process. And God says... Guys, in this part, in this middle part, I'm going to require you to cooperate with me to make this happen. God says, I'm, I'm taking care of all the justification. I'm taking care of all the glorification. But today, in this life, in this world, you are going to have responsibilities that you're going to come alongside and partner with me. This is God speaking, saying, you're going to work with me to help your Christian life grow and to become more like Christ. So the Apostle Peter, he's our coach for this process. He's going to show us these eight steps of progressive sanctification. But Peter is really only the assistant coach. Uh, he's like the, maybe the strength and conditioning coach. We actually have a head coach, actually three, 
But our main head coach that we're looking at, of course, is Jesus Christ, working through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, of course, the Father's there as well. So I'd like to read the passage, but I, I, instead of following along in your Bible, I'd like you to follow along on the chart that's on the back of your notes. So hopefully you, you picked one up and you're looking at that already. I'm going to read the verses, and I'd like you to follow along on those steps. We're going to actually start in verse number one, which is not included in, in our chart. The chart doesn't start until verse five. Today's lesson, though, will be about the first four verses. So I'm going to read verses uh, one <clears throat> All the way to verse 7. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse five, and this is where the chart begins. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So there is the progression that God is asking us to accomplish. That's our goal. And those are the steps to attain the goal. We're not going to get to the payoff by skipping over the foundation and the hard work. It's not going to happen. We're not going to magically become more godly, more brotherly, uh, more kind, and more loving just because we sit back and ask God to do that in our lives. He says, no, there's discipline required for your Christian life in order for you to grow. And so that's what we're going to be uh, addressing in this series. Before we can do that, I'd like to lay some foundation. And I think that's what Peter does in the first four verses. He lays a foundation, uh, a level of understanding that we can understand uh, how this process begins. And so we're going to look at these three foundational uh, truths. First of all, who we are. Secondly, what we know. And thirdly, what we have. So we have to establish our identity. We have to establish what we already know to be true. And then we'll go into what we have been given in order to carry us into the eight steps. So first of all, who we are. And we see that in the first part of Second Peter 1, we are people of faith. So if you're following along, there's not a blank to fill in, but just to help you follow along in the outline, letter A there under who we are, we are people of faith. Okay, and we see that in this verse of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Like precious faith being the, the key word there. So we need to understand our faith in Christ, Christian, is the same faith that the apostles had. Their faith has now become sight. But while they lived on this earth, especially after Jesus ascended and they went about establishing the church in that first century at the birth of the church, they did so in faith. 
And what Peter is saying to us is that just because they're apostles and just because they were there and the Bible talks about them by name, they do not have a spiritual advantage over you and I today. Just because they saw Christ, in fact, they do not have a spiritual advantage over us. I think a lot of times we tend to elevate the people that are named in Scripture and say, well, if only I could have enjoyed what they enjoyed or saw Christ or been part of the early church, oh, that would, be, that would be so great. Why? We have the complete canon of Scripture here. They didn't have that. Uh, they have no advantage over us. And, and we can't look to them and say, well, yeah, Peter and Paul and these guys and, these other, and the women also, they did all these great things, but uh, that's because they had this special uh, anointing or they had this special thing or they had the, the office of apostle, which we don't believe is um, still valid today anymore because of, there's no one else that has seen Christ in person. And so we say, oh, they, they had this, they had uh, no excuses for them, but I get all the excuses because I'm not them. And we tend to excuse ourselves and place them on a pedestal. And, and what Peter is saying is that those who have obtained like precious faith, this epistle is written to us. Peter and those guys, Paul and all of them uh, that we read about have no advantage over us. Now it says that they have obtained. So there's um, theological arguments about this and I I don't necessarily, I don't really want to, that's not the purpose of this class to pick apart um, the original language necessarily, although that's important and understand were they given faith with faith a gift? I don't believe it was a gift. I believe that's something that they chose, a choice that they made just like we do. However, we need to understand that without God's plan to provide Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, we would have nothing, we would have no one to place our faith in. So God, it, it was God's plan. Only God could, to, could create this type of plan that would include sending Jesus Christ down to earth to die for our sin and giving us an opportunity to put our faith in him. And I, so I think this, this verse just magnifies God's plan. He gave us someone to believe in when we had nothing else and we had no one else. And anything else would not be a solid faith because we couldn't trust it anyway. Uh, I love what the writer of Hebrews wrote here in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2. If my slide's going to cooperate here. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the ending of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. After going through that whole chapter 11 with all the heroes of the faith, he says, they're just there for for your encouragement, but you need to fasten your eyes on Christ. He is the author and finisher of your faith. And Jesus becomes the common bond then that we share with the apostles and all of those in the early church that the Bible talks about. Jesus is the common factor because we've all had to put our faith in him whether we were in the first century or in the 21st century. So we are, first of all, people of faith. Secondly, we are people of fellowship. We, we are people of fellowship with all Christians of all time. Now, we don't fellowship with them like you and I do today, but we have a spiritual fellowship. And I think that's what Peter's pointing at in this next verse, or the next part of verse one. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice all the inclusive language. 
we've obtained like precious faith with us, with Peter, with the apostles. He's our God, just like he was their God. Uh, there, there's, no, uh, there's no division there. We have an identity with Peter and the apostles and all those in the early church that lived 2,000 years ago. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Sorry for the uh, delays in the technology. Okay, the verse didn't make it onto the slide. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Go back to that and see if it'll open. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Notice the repetition of the word one in this passage. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6 says this. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism which I believe is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are in the same company as Peter and James and John and Paul and Mary and Martha and Phoebe and Priscilla and all the rest that are named. We are all one host. Yes, Unigro Baptist is a local church, but the church at large, we are We are not some distant relative from the people that we read about in Scripture. We are their brothers and sisters in Christ. We are fellowshipping with them spiritually. They do not have an advantage over us. The people in Scripture do not have an advantage over you and I in in terms of our faith. Jesus looks on Peter with no more love than that which he looks upon you and I. We are just as important to the mission and to the the heart of God as anyone that you read about in the Bible. Don't make the mistake of putting scripturally mentioned people except for the Lord Jesus Christ above where we are today. God sees us just as valuable. So all the same blessings, all the benefits are available to to us that were available to them. Now, we we are cessationalists. We don't believe the sign gifts continue. We don't believe the office of apostle officially continued. But as far as the blessings in Christ, it's equal. We are fellowshipping spiritually with these people that we read about. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, not some distant relative. So the Christian experience is a family experience. Now, if you're still in, in, that, in that passage, I want to just briefly pause and park on where it says one spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit dwelling today? In us. Is it the same spirit? Do do I have the same spirit as you? Do you have the same spirit as the people you're sitting next to? It's all the same spirit. Can the Holy Spirit ever contradict or argue or refute himself. So we all have the same spirit living inside of us. And this is the point I'm trying to make. The Holy Spirit in me is never going to fight against the Holy Spirit in you because he would be contradicting himself. I'm speaking about 
unity within the body of Christ. If there's fighting and disputes and anger or other sinful divisions within a local body of believers, it's us, not him. Now, sometimes the Spirit will urge us to stand for what's right, and we need to admonish one another. But how do we do that? How do we speak the truth? It, which is a fruit of what? The Spirit. So we, I think it's important that we grasp that. It's not wrong to express our opinion. It's not wrong to persuade someone of a different idea. But we must stop when the differences threaten to undo the relationship. We have to, to balance that out and understand, is, is this a spirit-led division or is this a fleshly division between us? And, and how, how, do we know the, how do we know the difference? Well, we have the standard right here. We have the gold standard. If something is violating this, then we don't back down and we, and we don't, we don't um, stop disagreeing. So long we're interpreting this correctly. So we better be careful about how we do that and be careful about how we're interpreting this. But understand that when we have conflict with one another, we need to be aware that the same Holy Spirit in me is in that person, if they're a believer, that I'm having the conflict with. And so it's important that we understand there is good conflict, but is, it, is the conflict spirit-led and is the standard that we're using the scripture? So we are people of faith and we are people of fellowship. That's who we are. That is our identity that Peter's giving us just in this first verse. Let's move on to what we know. There's certain truths that God has given us in his word that we can say, yes, I know this to be true. This is knowledge that I have. He says in verse number two of 2 Peter 1, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice that Coach Peter wants grace and peace to be multiplied to us, not just added, multiplied, abounding in abundance. He says, I'm about to send you into a, on a spiritual journey through this progressive sanctification process. You're going to need an abundance of grace and peace in order to, to accomplish this. And, and we need that today. Grace, of course, is God's free unmerited gift to us, but did you know that grace is also our empowerment to accomplish what Peter's about to ask us to do? Grace must permeate everything we do and say. It must be multiplied in our lives. We must bleed grace. We must kind of ooze grace in our conversations and in our lives. Peace then also is, is needed. It's not only the absence of disunity, but it's also a completeness. That's the, the Hebrew equivalent word shalom. It's not just peace as in no conflict. It's peace as in completeness. Here's a quote uh, from Wearsby on this. I feel pastor's pain. Before we get to that, I want to just point something out. In the book of 2 Peter, the words know or knowledge are, are used at least 13 times. So knowledge is actually one of our foundations that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. So it gives us an idea of the direction that Peter's going. 
Here's the quote. Shalom peace is a precious word to the Jewish people. It means much more than just the absence of war distress. Shalom means wholeness, completeness, health, security, even prosperity in the best sense. When we are enjoying God's peace, there is joy and contentment. But God's peace is not like the, quote, peace that the world offers. And here's, sorry about that. Some of my slides got got taken out. We need to understand, oh, there it is. The world bases its peace on its resources. The world says, if you've got enough money in the bank, your 401k is doing good, your investments are doing good, you're having a good relationship with your spouse or your family or your neighbors, or your car's working really good, or you've got really good clothes, you've got really all these things, all of your physical goods, all your resources are good, you've got peace. I hope that you've lived long enough to understand that that's completely a lie. You can have all the greatest things in the world and still lack peace. Because God's peace depends on relationships. Specifically and mainly our relationship with him. But it also is the connectivity that we have in the spirit that we were talking about earlier. Both grace and peace are necessary ingredients to the process of progressive sanctification. That's the foundation that Peter's laying here. Without grace and peace, sanctification will struggle and ultimately fail without these important elements. So how do we experience this multiplication of grace and peace? How do we get that? Well, he gives that to us uh, in, in the text. It's from the knowledge of the Father and the Son. Understanding that grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son. And you say, well, what about the Spirit? Well, I believe that it also flows from the Spirit because he's the one that's revealing the truths about the Father and the Son through the Word. Remember, the Spirit's the one that inspired this text. And so we have really the Trinity, the all three members of the Godhead, pouring grace and peace into our lives. I find great comfort in that, knowing that I don't have to depend on resources, but I can depend on my relationship with him. So let's look at the knowledge of God the Father and uh, then the knowledge of the Son. So the study of God the Father is, um, the, the term for that is the, theology proper. Theology is a really broad term, but theology proper mainly focuses on the Father. And we, we see that in verse 2a. So, again, sorry. Verse 2a says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. The more we know about God and understand that peace and grace are flowing from him, the, the greater understanding we have of it, the greater knowledge that we have, and the more it will flow out of our lives. And we'll look at some different verses uh, about these things, about the Father and the Son. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound. There's that word again, an abundance and a multiplication Toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. This is another passage that's pointing us to progressive sanctification. 
So God is able to make the grace abound. And this is where we understand that that grace is not just a free unmerited gift. It is also our empowerment to accomplish what God has asked us to do. The grace gives us the abundance for what? Every good work. Everything that he's asked us to do. For God is not the author, in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. It's part of his very nature, as in all the churches of the saints. He's also part of his name. Back in Judges uh, chapter 6, Gideon, if you remember, builds this altar, and he, he calls the altar, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. It's one of God's very names. And so grace and peace are multiplied to us, or grace is multiplied to us, or peace, from the Father. That's what we know of God the Father. What about the the Son? What about Jesus? We call that the study of Christology. Understanding who Jesus specifically, that second member of the Trinity is. Jesus also provides us with grace and peace. And Acts 15.11 says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It's by the grace of Christ that we are saved. Well, what about the grace of the Father? That too. <laughs> and I just find this, this layering of, of this teaching from Scripture about the grace of God so powerful to think about. Oh, not only do we have the grace of the Father, but we also have the grace of the Son in our lives. Hebrews 14 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. This is the grace of Jesus where he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We can come boldly to his throne because it's it's not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace for those of us that are believers. That we may obtain mercy and find what? Grace to help in time of need. Sometimes I think we struggle so much growing in our faith or in our walk with Christ because we neglect to understand the grace of God and how powerful the grace of Christ is. Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God. He demonstrated that perfectly on the cross to us. And he offers us this grace when we need it. But Jesus also provides peace. In John 14, he's told the disciples, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going to be nailed on a cross and buried and rise again the third day. We're right over their heads. All they heard was, I'm leaving you. And their hearts were breaking. They were grieving the loss of their their rabbi. But Jesus said these words, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that Jesus provides has no parallel in this world. There is nothing, there's no person, no matter how close they are to you, no matter how much they love you, there's no thing, no matter how precious it might be in your sight, that can give you the peace that Jesus Christ offers. 
His peace is unmatched in this world. The Father and the Son provide eternal grace and peace. I love this verse. This is a prophetic verse. It's eschatological in nature because it's talking about the eternal future. It says that in the ages to come, when is that going to be? That's going to be the eternal future where we'll spend it with the Lord, those of us that have believed in Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Say, well, how big is the grace of God? How, how massive is the peace that God offers? This verse tells us that it, it will literally take an eternity to unfold the grace of God for us. If we can, our finite minds can't fully grasp eternity, but if if you can try to picture it however works for you, this infinite line stretching out and never ending, and picture an unfolding of God's grace, also infinitely unfolding. That's God's grace. We think we, we grasp understanding of God's grace, and we thankfully can understand at least part of it. But here in Ephesians 2, 7, it says, you haven't seen anything yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. God's grace is going to be unfolding in front of us for eternity. That's how, that's how majestic and awesome and amazing it is. That's powerful. And that's what we know. We've talked about who we are. We've talked about what we know. And we're done at 11.45, correct? We start at 11. <clears throat> That's what we're going to go with. We also want to talk about what we have. Look at verse number 3. 2 Peter 1.3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the what? The knowledge. There's that word again. The knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. This, I believe, is the keystone of this whole passage and this whole study that we're on of progressive sanctification, trust the process. I believe verse number three is the keystone of all of that. Because, yes, we have a part to play, but the power to be sanctified and to grow does not come from us. We have a part to play. God has given us a role to have in this process, but it's not to provide the power. You possess no power to sanctify yourself, and I don't either. No one does. The power comes from God because look look at the wording. His divine power has given to us some things. Is that right? How many things? All things. That means because... His power has given to us all things. That means there is no other credible power source that we can rely upon to become progressively sanctified. It's all him. The power is all him. Yes, we participate in it, and we have to, we must, but the power is all him, and it's divine power. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's a little phrase that we could sum up as progressive sanctification. Everything that we 
do in this life and the godliness we're trying to achieve, the power to do that comes through God's power through Christ. It's, it's an amazing thing to think about. So we have been given divine power. If you're following on the outline, that's in verse number three. We've been given divine power to do everything that God has asked us to do. So here we are. We're in the locker room. It's almost time to go out on the field. And Coach Peter, he's giving us that pregame speech. He's, he's getting us pumped, getting us ready to step out into the field of life and to be sanctified and to grow in our faith. And he, he's getting us focused on these most important truths that will, are going to come into play later on. We have to ground ourselves to this and anchor ourselves into this truth that the power comes from God alone. There's our verse again. Look back at your chart again. Does this seem daunting to anyone else but me? It seems impossible. There are days when it's like, this, this is never going to happen. You have those days? This is, I'm never going to get this. I'm stuck back in the foundation. I haven't even started the hard work yet, much less got the payoff. The truth is we don't have what it takes on our own. We only have what it takes in cooperation with what God wants to do in our lives. So his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now comes some truth, some promises from God that we can drive our anchor, our stakes down into and be firmly rooted and planted so that when the difficulty comes of progressive sanctification, we can go back to that and say, oh yeah, that's still true. It was true yesterday, it's true today, it's going to be true tomorrow. It's important to understand that these facts that Peter's laying down are much greater than your feelings. You ever go through a day and you feel like you're not saved anymore? I mean, just being honest. I don't really feel like much of a Christian today. Maybe it was a failure, maybe it was a sin, maybe it was just a frustration. You say, this, is, does, this doesn't feel like the Christian life that uh, I think it should, should be. Your feelings, and, and I'm just being very gently blunt with you, don't matter. Sorry, but they're, they're important and God gave us those for reasons. But when it comes to truth, only the facts really matter. And that's what we have to anchor. We must resolve in our hearts to anchor ourselves to the facts because our feelings are going to take us all kinds of different places. This brings us to this point of, of the sufficiency of Scripture. Peter's talking about these precious promises. Where do we find them? Do we find them in the back of our hymnal? Do we find them in some creed or confession? Where do we find the, the promises? Right here, you're holding it. You're looking at it. The, the sufficiency of Scripture is this doctrine that says that the Bible is sufficient by itself. 
with no other resources and no other writings and no other people, it's sufficient by itself to give us the wisdom that we need to live a godly life. Only scripture contains the promises of God. You'll not find them anywhere else. I don't care if they were crocheted on a pillow or or on a sign somewhere or you wrote it on your hand or somebody tattooed it on your arm. doesn't matter. The source didn't change. It's this and this alone. One example of these promises I find particularly encouraging is Philippians 1.6. This is another passage that points to progressive sanctification. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, which happened when you believed on Christ and the Holy Spirit entered you and you became a child of God, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's that glorification, that third phase of salvation that we're looking forward to. In other words, you may have given up on yourself, Christian, but God never did. He's continuing to faithfully, 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 day after day after day, pour out his grace and his peace in your life. No matter what you feel or what you think is true, God continues to work in our hearts going on right now we can be part of it we can reap the many benefits and the more we uh, interact with God and participate in it the greater our joy will become the greater our experience of the Christian life will become so we've been given this divine power as we try to fly through the ending here we've also been given a divine nature look at verse number four that through these through what through the promises they mentioned in verse three Through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Not only do we have God's power at hand, we're also able to experience at least part of God's very nature. The word partakers here, it means partners or sharers. That's the the definition. Partners or sharers. It's used in other places in the New Testament. In the the, uh, Gospels, come on. Luke 5.10 talks about the, 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 the disciples. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were what with Simon? Partners with Simon. They had a fishing business that they were all connected together in. They were business partners. That means that both of these families work cooperatively in order to have this successful fishing business. This means that as we live our lives according to the precious promises that we find in Scripture, we also partner with God. We cooperate with God. And when we do that, we get to enjoy his divine nature. 2 Corinthians 3.18, another verse uh, that talks about progressive sanctification. That through these, I'm sorry, there it is. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's an active verb. It's happening right now. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
the result of partnering with God and his divine nature are right here in the, in the verse. Notice that when we're partakers of the divine nature, what have we done? We're escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we go through the Christian life, we find ourselves getting bogged down. We find ourselves struggling with sin. Maybe it is specifically the sin of lust, but it could be really anything, any kind of corruption it's talking about in general, any type of sin, any type of weakness. It's, it could be because you and I have not been participating in the divine nature that God offers to us. We haven't been anchoring ourselves in the promises of Scripture so that we can then enjoy the benefits of the divine power and the divine nature that God offers to us. So next week, Lord willing, we will study uh, the foundation of faith, virtue, and knowledge. Those are the first three uh, on your chart. So hang on to that. I'd encourage you to take it home with you. Maybe look up some of the verses kind of prepare your mind, go through Second Peter 1 a little bit. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back next week and we'll start on that. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you so much for your patience with us, Lord, that you, even when we don't feel, uh, we don't feel it and our emotions take us other places, we can be anchored in the truth of your word. We can know for a certainty that the promises, Lord, that you're gonna c- continue to work in our hearts and complete what you've started until the day of Christ. We can know that to be true, Lord, no matter what our emotions and our feelings tell us. So Lord, help us as we go through this week. Each of us will face different trials, different uh, emotions, different problems in life. Father, no matter what's going on, help us to continue to look back to your word, to the precious promises that are therein, so that we can experience your divine power and your divine nature. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.